This evening, I'd like us to look at the two occasions in which Jesus appeared to the disciples. They're both found in John's Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 20. The first is verses 19 through to 23. And then the second is 24 through to um, about 29. But we'll see how time goes with us. The story is based about doubting Thomas. It seems really strange that that's how he's remembered, because really only on one occasion did he exercise some doubt about what the disciples said, and yet he was labeled with that. Maybe you're trying to live down a name that was given to you. Maybe someone said to you, well, you're going to be a failure, or you're this, or you're that, and it's been hanging around you. Well, tonight, as we look at the scriptures and how Jesus dealt with Thomas, it give you hope that you have a fresh start, that you are not to be labelled, you have an opportunity to serve the Lord. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see how we continue. Let me read something to you. Confused, fearful, not knowing what the future holds. No, that's not talking about the pandemic that we're sharing at the moment, but it's the upper room after the resurrection. The story of Christ's res resurrection proves can encourage us at this time of challenge for our nation and for our world. It tells us there that on the first evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. That obviously speaks of an event in the life of the disciples. Jesus had been put on trial. He'd been crucified. Talk of his resurrection still not had gripped their hearts. And so what takes place in them is fear overtakes them. And that's almost a picture of our society. We are locked down, not for fear of the Jewish leaders. We're locked down for fear of the virus, for fear of contaminating ourselves or contaminating others. But God no more wants you to be locked down in fear than anything. Let me assure you of that. And if you are sitting here tonight and you're fearful about anything, let me assure you, that's not what God has planned for you. Just before we move into the, the story, I'd like to just give you a little bit of background about Thomas. First of all, who was Thomas? Well, first of all, he was obviously one of the disciples, very important. Um, his name, Thomas, means twin. Also, it's called as Didymus as well, which means twin. So one's in Aramaic, the other's in Greek. So that's how he was known. He was known as the twin. We don't find anywhere in scripture the mention of his twin. That was just him. Um, he's mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Four times he's part of a list of the other disciples. Many believe that he may well have been a fisherman because in John 21, when Peter says, I go fishing, Thomas was named amongst those in John 21 who went fishing as well. So that's a possibility. We believe he became a missionary. Um, Eusebius of Caesarea speaks of him about how he went to Iran, what we know as Iran today as a missionary. Now, tradition tells us that he died in India by being speared. But again, that's tradition. But whatever it is, we're going to discover this evening the man doesn't deserve the title Doubting Thomas, just like you and I sometimes don't deserve the titles people have put upon us. He had a high level of commitment. 
in John 11, when Jesus was talking of going towards Lazarus's uh, graveside to raise him, they warned him not to go because of the antagonism of the Jewish people in that area. And it was Thomas who said, look, we'll go with Jesus and we'll die with him. If he's going to die there, we'll die with him. So this man was no coward. He wasn't a doubter in the sense that he was shrinking back. In fact, his character speaks of strength. He was prepared to go with Jesus, even if it meant physical death. Um, he even spoke to Jesus when Jesus spoke in John 14 about in my father's house and the way. He says, how can we know the way? And so his mind was active. He had a, a, an intelligence that wanted to understand and wanted to know. He was possibly a fisherman. And of course, when we get to John 20 in a couple of moments, we'll see that he wasn't prepared to take the word of others. He needed to know for himself. Now, some would say that's not a doubt, but scripture tells us about that. So let's turn to the text that we made that we are reading. And let me read to you the first portion of our May. That's John 20, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, the sins are given. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We need to look at this before we actually arrive when Thomas is in the room. Very important. As I said earlier, this story begins with the group of disciples living in fear. Now, whenever fear turns up, Jesus wants to come into that situation. He didn't want his disciples in fear. It tells us in John, 1 John 4, 18, perfect love dries out all fear. Timothy tells us, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so what the disciples were experiencing wasn't what God wanted them to experience. And if you and I are living in fear, if we're behind some locked doors, not necessarily physical doors, may I assure you that Jesus wants to meet with you where you are. And he'll say the same words to you as he said to the disciples, peace, peace. That is what he has come to do. See, the antidote for fear is peace. Verse 19, peace be with you. Verse 21, peace be with you. Ephesians 4.17 says this, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And there Paul is reminding them that Jesus' message is the same for the Jew and the Gentile. He's come to preach peace. Very, very important. Now, this is eight days after the resurrection, and they're still in Judea. You remember they were instructed to go into Galilee. And one commentator has said that maybe they were waiting for Thomas. Thomas wasn't with them in the room. Maybe they were waiting for Thomas to catch them up and for Thomas to come to understand what was happening. I'll leave it with you to do some detective work. It tells us there that he showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You see, that is the identification of the Messiah. 
If anyone ever turns up in your life or you sometimes see them on the media claiming to be the Messiah, let me tell you now, if they don't have the nail prints, they're not the Messiah. If they don't have the scar of the spear, they're not the Messiah. And so he was able to identify himself clearly by the fact of what had happened to him upon the cross. In fact, he told them in John 16, verse 22, what was going to happen. He says, now is the time of your grief, but you will, I will be seen again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The great thing of the understanding Christ's resurrection is that we receive joy from it. And it's joy that no one can take away. It's our peace. It's our joy we receive from the risen Lord. Of course, these were words that are a fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah 9, 6, he is called the Prince of Peace. And in John 16, 33, he says the words, I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. If you're looking for peace, if you feel you're in that room, you're, the doors are shut, let me tell you now, the peace that you seek is found in him, not in church. And churches are good, not, not in even studying the scriptures, very important as that is. In prayer, no, no, our peace is the, the peace that we source is none other than being in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there were two greetings on this occasion. Now, you might think, well, why? Normally, when you come into someone's home in our society, you say, hello, how are you? Now, after some moments, if you said to them again, hello, how are you? They might think that was a little bit strange. And this was a common greeting, peace be with you. I think the clue to the two greetings is found in what took place afterwards. So we find, first of all, that Jesus came to them. He said, peace be with you, verse 19. Then afterwards, he showed them his hands and his side. I believe the two are connected. He's reminding them, he's showing them that his death and his resurrection are the source of our peace. It's not peace from religion or whatever. Our peace comes from him, and it's on the basis of his death for us. We are justified through faith, Romans 5 1 says, justified through faith that we have peace with God. And in this first occasion when he said, peace be with you, I believe with him pointing to his hands and his side, and Luke tells us his feet, so the Gospels are there, um, it was so that he could establish with them that they now had peace with God. And that's the beginning of peace. We have to be at peace with God before we can be at peace with ourselves or at peace with, with life itself. Because when we realize that Jesus died on the cross, that those marks on his hands, that spear in his side was for us. He died that we might be forgiven. And so any peace that the Christian enjoys is not sourced in himself. It's sourced in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are justified through faith. We have peace with God. Now, the second greeting, I think, was to emphasize another truth. He says simply, and the peace of God pardon me, he says there, peace be with you. Then he says, as my father sent me, so I am sending you. The first peace was peace with God. The second, I believe, was peace, the peace of God. He was commissioning them. He's saying, listen, I've got equal sending rights as my father. He sent me, I'm sending you. 
And he wanted them to know that as they went, they already had peace with God, but they were now going to take with them the peace of God. Scripture tells us the peace of God that passeth all understanding. It says in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. So before they began their ministry, before they left out, we went to Acts 2 and everything else, God wanted them to know that his presence with them would bring peace. His death on the cross brought peace with God. Now they have the peace of God living in their hearts. Now, peace is not the absence of trouble or conflict. Peace is knowing that God is in control. And whatever fears may be overtaking you, and I'm not minimizing them. I'm not saying they're not real. All I'm saying is that let the peace of God rule in your heart. One translation uses the phrase, let the peace of God stand sentry at your heart. Imagine the peace of God is a soldier. You've gone to Buckingham Palace. You're going down um, Whitehall and you see the soldiers there on guard duty. Well, that's what God's peace does. He stands at the entrance to your heart, the peace of God, and guards your heart. So whatever comes, whether you're in a physical lockdown or a spiritual lockdown, the peace of God stands sentry there. In other words, years ago, soldiers on sentry duty were told to say, who goes there? And the peace of God will not let anything past that is going to disturb or damage you in any way. He is, he is the sentry that guards our hearts. And so the first peace of God was peace with God through his death. The second is the peace of God. I am sending you. Of course, a very famous verse on um, uh, peace, somebody of peace is Matthew 5, 9, one of the Beatitudes. All the sons of God. And Jesus was the great peacemaker. The great peacemaker. And um, we look at um, uh, other ministries, but you look at the ministry of Christ. He brought peace. He brought reconciliation. Very big words, I know. Forgive me. Um, and particularly if English isn't your first language, I hope you'll forgive it. But that's what he does. He brings peace, reconciliation to us. We are brought back to God. Okay. Do you know there's a lovely verse that says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. I think this was the first fulfillment of that promise. After his resurrection, okay, he met with others, but this is the first time when we could say the infant church, whether they were the church yet, we'll, maybe it's for another uh, study, but he turns up, there they were, they were met, in the, and he was in the midst. And he will come to you where you are. The great thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is mobile. Okay, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We're aware of that. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, whatever situation you find yourself in, he can be there with you. Forgive me. He is there with you if you are a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, may I just say, great, you're listening. Thank you very much. Do tune in again. We've got some better preachers coming along soon. But let me say this to you, that the marks on Jesus's hands and feet and side are as much for you as they were for me. There's no elitist here. 
He died for everyone, Jew, Gentile, which basically means everyone is included in that. Okay. Now I'd like us to turn now to that second portion. We've looked at the first appearance when Jesus came. He breathed on and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He then speaks about the preaching of the gospel. And now we're coming back. It's a week later, a week later. So we've had the first appearance of Christ. And now we're going to have the second appearance of Christ. Let me just say something there. Jesus didn't walk through walls. Please, I'm being really respectful. Jesus wasn't a spook. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't anything like that. He appeared. And there's going to be a proof in a moment that we will see that proves that Jesus was there with them. And all that was happening was he was manifesting his presence. But be in no doubt, just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's with you. And that's where faith comes in. If he was always visible, then where would faith be? But because we can know he's with us and we put our faith in him, then we can indeed go forward. So let me read the second portion. I hope you're all right listening to this. Okay. Now, Thomas, verse 24, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not the disciple, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, sorry, pardon me. Um, he said to them, pardon me, was, there we are. Just proves this is live, doesn't it, when the preacher makes a mistake. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, I put my finger where the nails are and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, to give Thomas the title, the doubts on the basis of that, I think is a bit harsh, personally. He wasn't doubting. He just said, I need more proof. He was doubting what the, the other disciples had said. But then they had doubted what the ladies had said when they came from the tomb. So it, we have to be kind to the disciples at this time. It was all new. It was all the, very stressful. They had seen him crucified, rumors of his resurrection. We haven't yet had some other encounters. RT spoke to us last week about the fish and cooking the breakfast, and his encounter with Peter. These are still very early days. In fact, it is before then. So anyway, he says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Okay. A week later, okay, so Thomas wasn't with them. They told him that they'd seen the Lord. He says, really, I'm not saying you're lying, but I need more proof. I, this is unbelievable what you're saying and may i tell you it was unbelievable it's the greatest miracle that's ever happened and then it says in verse 20 a week later the disciples in the house again and thomas was with them though the doors were locked though the doors were locked jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you and so again the doors were locked we're in this fearful it doesn't say there was fear of the jews Probably, I think we could take the same inference that what they were experiencing in the first chapter, maybe it was the second, maybe not. You have a read and make your mind up. But he came and he stood, and uh, where, though the doors were locked. 
So whether the doors were locked because they were frightened of the Jews or it was locked because people locked their doors, Jesus came into the midst with them. He showed himself. Friends, when we find ourselves in any place with the doors locked, where you're fearful of something, I, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to run off a long list here of things, but I don't want to even put ideas in your head. You'll know if you're in that place. Let me tell you now, look for him. Look over your shoulder. Look around. Jesus will be there with you. He said, peace be with you. So he was identified once again with the greeting that he had given on their previous encounter. But then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Okay, so there's the word doubting that was introduced, the name that got Thomas kept with him. So this is a week later. Please notice that the Sunday was coming more important to them. These events were taking place on what we know as the Sunday. And it was essential that Thomas came to faith in this. Because Thomas was one of the 12. Judas had gone. We now had the 11. So it was important that that group were united in their understanding of the resurrection. So the fact he wasn't there, okay, now Jesus turns up to him. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, different commentators believe that Simon did touch him, that he did those things. Others believe that he didn't bother. Once he saw him and saw the marks, that was enough. To me, the great miracle for Thomas is this. Not only did he see the risen Lord, but the risen Lord knew what he had said a week earlier. Here is Thomas saying to the disciples, or the disciples say to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And he said, look, I'll tell you what, unless I see it, I won't believe it. And then a week later, in response to that, Jesus doesn't go through all the formalities. He just says to Thomas, Thomas, I'm here for you. I heard what you said because I was in that room, but you just didn't know I was there. And then we have from Thomas an amazing burst of truth. In fact, I, I wonder whether this is a, the greatest confession of uh, from any of the disciples. I think it's probably in many ways is on par with Peter's great confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. We find that this man who was told to believe and not to doubt, he bursts forth with one of the most tremendous acclamations of truth that we find in the early church. He says to him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. So it wasn't a theological statement from a book. This was his experience. So he says, Lord and God, which was perfect for an understanding of who Christ is. He is Lord and he is divine. We've got to stop calling Thomas doubting. After this confession, it's absolutely outstanding. But the great truth is here. He said, my Lord and my God. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord. It's one thing to say Jesus is God. 
that's a theological statement that will go in a book somewhere. But that's not where God wants to be. He doesn't want to be in a book. He doesn't want to be in a set of fundamental. He wants to be in your life. And he says simply, my Lord and my God. This man who previously had doubted, in my opinion, was soaring to the heights of revelation on par with Peter's, if not more. The difference is Peter's confession was for the resurrection. Thomas's confession was after the resurrection. So it's hard to compare them. But what a statement. What he saw, it says in verse 29, Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. And it's in seeing Christ that we believe. I became a Christian in West London, strange enough, in South Harrow, a full gospel church. I became a Christian. On that night, before that, Jesus was a name. He was just another name that I'd heard about. But on that night, I met him and he became my savior. And I did what Thomas did. I believed. And yet we find here, I'm watching the clock because time's moving on. You've been very patient. He said, you have seen me and have believed. But it says there, blessed are those who have not seen me yet have believed. Now, who are they? So Thomas saw and believed. But Jesus talks about another group of people, a group of people who are blessed, who have not seen yet have believed. And do you know who they are? It's you and me. I've not seen the risen Lord, yet I believe in him. I've received his peace. I have been justified with God because of what Christ did. You may never see his physical bodily manifestation. If you do, we are very privileged, but I won't go waiting for it because you can believe on his name, believe that he died for you, believe he rose again, and then you could be one of those blessed or happy are those who have not seen yet have believed. And that was going to be this great swathe of people who after Christ's ascension were going to move forward. There were individuals who saw Christ. Paul on the road to Damascus saw Christ. And there were occasions when Jesus would manifest himself. Maybe many believe that for Paul, because he was going to be the apostle to replace Judas, he had that special dispensation. I'll leave you to have a think about that. So blessed are those who have not seen. Now, right at the end of the chapter, and times my time's nearly gone, it says there, but these things are written that you might believe. So this wasn't storytelling. We don't find that these things are put there just for a story or some historical record. Everything that's recorded has a purpose. And the purpose is there. But these things are written. Why? That you might believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Messiah. That means the anointed one of God. The son of God. And by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So for Pete, for Thomas, it was a turning point from doubt to faith to salvation. And for us, this is why this was written. So it wasn't written just so we could talk about doubt and faith and Thomas and the doors being locked. No, no, there's a higher purpose. And the higher purpose is that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
we started off with fear. We went from fear to faith. We went from faith to manifestation, and now we move to life. And that's the journey. You can have fear, and then you can have faith, and then you receive life in Jesus Christ.